Thanks for joining us today at Springwell Church, where we want to draw spiritually thirsty people to Jesus by loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. We hope that today's message builds you up, gives you a little insight, and helps you find a brand new perspective. You can find us in Taylor, South Carolina, and online at springwell.org. That's springwell.org. Now let's jump into the message. A lot of times I'll kick off a message uh, by asking a question. And so I'm going to do that this morning, but I'm going to admit right off out of the gate, it's like the dumbest question I've ever asked. Okay? So, and so here's the question. The question is, how many of you have ever been through a really tough time in your life? A relational struggle, a financial struggle, um, maybe a hard time at work, some type of difficult day that maybe, maybe turned into a difficult season. If that's you, y'all already beat me to the punch. Go ahead and get your hand up. If you haven't gone through that, it's coming. <laughs> of course we have. We all have. All of us have. That's why I said it was a dumb question because, that's, I mean, let's just be honest. That's the way life is. Life is full of difficult days, and sometimes those difficult days stretch into difficult seasons. And when I say a season, there's been times in my own life personally that I know that a day stretched into a week, turned into a month, turned into years, years, years. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you pumped up and excited that maybe your difficult day will turn into years? I'm just here to be a blessing, encourage you, you know. Uh, but that is the truth, and that's the way it's worked for, for me. And so I think that what we're looking for is we're looking for a life hack. We're looking for something that will get us through those difficult days. Hopefully they won't turn into seasons, but if they do, what is it? What can get us through it? And so if you're here this morning you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to know. <clears throat> I want you to know that just because you become a follower of Jesus <clears throat> doesn't mean that you won't go through those difficult days. It won't turn into difficult months. It won't turn into difficult years. I'm not a health and wealth. I'm not a prosperity kind of guy. I'm not going to be the guy that says, who in the world wouldn't want to give their life to Jesus if my promise to you today is if you do, you'll never experience another betrayal, another hurt, another pain. You'll never have another loss. Man, who in the world wouldn't want to give their life to Jesus if that were the case? So I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to be honest with you, that if you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you won't still have difficult days that turn into difficult weeks, that turn into months, that maybe will turn into years, but here's what I can promise you, because at my age, what I have learned is going through it with Jesus is better than going through it without Jesus. Come on now, if you're a follower, help me out. <clears throat> so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at life according to Jim. Okay, I'm twisted. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be studying the New Testament book of, of James. And I love James. I love James. James is just, he, he, he's short and to the point. He doesn't chew his cabbage twice. He gets in your face pretty much right out of the gate. I like that about James. In fact, the book of James is kind of a manual of test. It's a manual of test by which we can better understand, listen to me carefully, the faith that we say that we have. And you'll have to hang around for the next couple of weeks as we kind of get into that because James actually asked a question. It's a rhetorical question in chapter 2. Can the faith that you say you have, can that faith save you? Because here's what, here's what I know. Difficult days, difficult times will cause you to question your faith. 
They just will. So let's jump in. You ready? Here's another question. It's easy. So who wrote the book of James? Man, that's good out there, Jim. Did you get an A for today? When they pass that bucket, oh, I'm sorry. We've already passed it. I was going to tell you to get you some out. but uh, Yeah, James. But here's the thing. Which James? So like which James? Because in the New Testament, there's actually four James that are mentioned in the New Testament. So when you get to this particular book of James, which James would it be? Well, most theologians would agree that this James, this James in particular, is actually the little brother of Jesus. And I love that. And let me tell you why I love that. I love that because James, while Jesus was alive and on planet Earth, James was a doubter. In fact, not only was he a doubter, he, he didn't believe the whole Messiah thing at all. Now, if you're new to church, you're probably thinking, I don't know if I'd tell that. You know, like, so like the family of Jesus didn't believe in Jesus? Here's what I know. His brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. That's what I know for sure. And how would... How would it be to, like, be raised with your big brother being Jesus? That'd be kind of odd, wouldn't it? I mean, how many times do you think maybe Mary or Joseph looked at him and said, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? I mean, that would be tough, man. I'm just saying. But I'm, what I'm saying, and he wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one in the family. So, okay, but James was a doubter, but I bet the rest of the kids kind of rallied around. That's not true. In fact, in John chapter 7, here's what it says. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, where all your followers can see your miracles. This is sarcastic language here. Are you with me? <clears throat> you can't become famous if you're going to hide. If you're just going to hide like this. And if you do such wonderful things, if you can do such wonderful things, if that's the case, then show yourself to the world. God bless you. Talk among yourself. I, I love that. And here's what it says. It finishes up this verse by saying, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. And again, I mean, it's not that hard to understand. What it would have been like. I mean, I know if you're a parent, I'm a parent. Karen and I have two beautiful girls we love our two girls equally. But wow, what would it be like if you gave birth to Jesus? You know what I'm saying? I mean, don't you think as a mom or a dad, there might be a little bit of human that would slip out in you occasionally, you know? And don't you think that maybe, you know, your, the other siblings would look at you as you would look at him? It'd kind of be irritating. So they didn't believe. But here's a book that's literally being written by somebody that did not believe. So what is it that changed his mind? Something big had to take place. Well, it did. According to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, James is one of the first people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. And I'm just saying, the resurrection would change everybody's mind, right? So like if Jesus, if you're a doubter, if Jesus were to show up right now, I'm not kidding you, right here, right now, Sit down beside you. Say, see them hands? You want to see my feet? Check out my side. And if, I mean, like, there was no doubt whatsoever in your mind that that was Jesus, wouldn't it change your mind? And I wonder what that conversation was like. Like when Jesus shows up to James. 
I wonder what that must have been like. I wonder what he might have said to him. What do you think about me now, little brother? I mean, I wonder how that would have been. I wonder if he said, I told you so. The resurrection changed everything. It changed everything for James, and I guess it would. But here's evidence of the change. Let's jump into the book of James and look at the evidence of the change. Verse 1, this letter is from James. A slave of God and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I totally get the slave of God thing. But, he, he doesn't just say, I'm a slave of God. He says, but, literally, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't even say, I'm a slave of my big brother, Jesus. He says, I'm a slave of God and of Jesus. I mean, how humble do you have to me to be to admit that you're wrong and then to be able to say, so, you know what, i got to be honest, Jesus, I didn't think you were all that special when we were growing up. I really didn't. I didn't see it. You kind of got on my nerves with this being perfect stuff, never doing anything wrong, and you were a tattletale, and you were always right. But he says, I was wrong. And so from this day forward, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. And so from this day forward, I want to be your slave. I want to be your slave. I want you to be my master. He's saying that to his big brother. How humble would you have to be to admit that? And then James, when he, he says, I, wow, he didn't even invoke family privilege here. And, and you would think that humanity would get the better of him, wouldn't you? Like James, the brother, the son of God. The Messiah. That's my family. Who's in your family? What's your family done? But he doesn't. There's nothing but total and complete humility. And so I think we can contrast, trust his conversion and his change of mind, his change of heart, because honestly, it had to be tough. And just so you know, because I think this is really important, the Greek word doulos is, is the Greek word here for, for servant or slave, depending upon your translation. Here's what it means. Literally, the word means one who is deprived of personal freedom. You leaning in? One who is deprived of, of personal freedom. One who is fully come into control of his master. It comes from a verb that means to bind. He is bound. He is a slave... By birth, not another Greek word that they could have used, and I can't say that word, but it means that you were made a slave. There's a difference. There's a difference between being made a slave, not having a choice to be a slave, that you were sold into slavery. Joseph in the Old Testament was sold into slavery. They didn't give him a choice. But here he's saying, I am, I'm a slave by birth, this new birth, placing my faith in in Jesus. Let me tell you what else this word means. I think it's awesome. A slave. A slave. Doulos means that I have no concern for housing. I have no concern for, for food. I have no concern for, for clothing. And the reason that a slave in this context didn't have any concern for any of those things was because they were fully Trusting in their master to provide everything that they need. 
So they didn't have to worry about all that stuff on their own. So like how many of us, how many of us could like slip up our hands right now? Don't. <laughs> how many of us could raise our hand and say, man, that's me. That's me right there. I'm, I'm with James. This, 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 what, this is the word that describes James, a guy who said, I grew up in the same household as Jesus. And the whole time that he was alive on planet Earth, I didn't buy into the Messiah story. I never did. I thought it was a bunch of bunk. I, I just thought he was a goody two-shoes. I don't know what all went through James' mind. He said, but you know what? When I saw the resurrected Jesus who was in the, in the tomb for three days and now he's alive, I mean, I sold out to him. And I so resigned myself to him that I'm not even responsible for my stuff. Wow. So in the morning, you can call your boss and say, I quit. Because I'm a do-loss. He might interpret that to think you're a dimwit. I don't, don't, be careful with that Greek word. So am I saying that we don't have to work? Am I saying that, that we don't have to be responsible, that we don't have to pay our bills? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying, how much stress would be taken off our life if we were put in certain circumstances and situations where we could just relax and say, and I've said this, I don't know if this is the kind of prayer you want to pray or not, but I've literally said at times, all right, big boy, you got us in this mess, you got to get us out. That's my talking to Jesus. That's probably offensive to somebody, that's okay. You're not in my relationship with Jesus. And so you handle it the way, any way you want to. I'm just saying that he and I, that's the way we talk. And so he can look at me and he can say, it's okay. You're right. I got you in it. You can trust me to get you out of it. Whatever it is, I lead you into. Then he says this. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Don't you love it when sometimes you read the Bible and you go, what? Like, what does that mean? So he's writing to Christian Jews that are spread all over the world. That's what that means. So, and so why are they spread all over the world? Because of persecution. The book of Acts is, is a fascinating book. I love the book of Acts. And, and I love chapter 1. I, I love chapter 2. I love chapter 3. Chapter 4 gets better. I mean, the church in, in those early days, here's what you've got to understand. These were people that did not believe. The disciples were not there on resurrection morning, you know, with the pickup truck. And hot dogs and hamburgers ready to throw a party for the resurrection. They were not looking for the resurrection. Are you with me? Come on, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. They, they, weren't, they weren't anticipating. And so they thought Mary, when she got there, she thought somebody stole the body. Nobody was looking for the resurrection. But once they saw, over 500 witnesses saw the resurrection. They saw the, the risen Savior. And when they saw it, Whoa, it changed everything. And the first church exploded with growth. They went from 150 to 3,000 to 5,000 to 10,000. Theologians believe that, that the first church could have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 60,000. Some even believe more than that. And it exploded with growth, but then Christians started to be persecuted. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of those early followers, very devout follower of Jesus, literally was stoned to death. End of Acts chapter 7. Chapter 8, here's what verse 1 says. Now Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so they were being persecuted. And I'm not being they were just being made fun of because they were Christians. 
I don't, I don't mean that when, they went to, that when they went to school that, you know, somebody laughed at them and said, oh, you're one of those Jesus freaks. Now, I'm not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about literally these people were being put to death in the most horrendous ways you can imagine. They were being set on fire alive and used to light Nero's garden. I mean, just study history. Forget studying Christian history. Just study history. It's a terrible time. So these these people were scattered because they were being persecuted. That's, that's the people that he's writing to. Some did really well. Some did not do so well. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for joy. So have you been keeping up? Because this is just weird. These people were being persecuted. When I say persecuted, I mean they were being put to death because they confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Hello, you with me? That's like persecution on steroids. Y'all with me? I mean, this is like the ultimate. It doesn't get any more persecuted than this. And, and, and some were being put to death, and some, according to James 2, they were poor. And they were being taken advantage of by some other Jewish Christians who were rich. And so when he says, you're going through all these hard, tough days, consider it an opportunity for great joy, it's just weird. And I think that that's probably where somebody, you know, if you're brand new to the whole Jesus thing, you just want to raise your hand and say, this is where I get off the Jesus train. I mean, I want off. You people are weird. Christians are weird. They're just weird people. Who in their right mind thinks that hard times are an opportunity for great joy? It's crazy talk. Opportunity for great joy. You know what normal people do when hard times come? They abandon their faith. That's what normal people do. Normal, normal people say, God, you don't love me. You don't care anything about me. Why would you allow these things to happen? Here's the crazy thing. It was the same thing was happening to these guys. They literally were being put to death. And so there were family members that saw their, their moms and their dads and their children that were literally put to death. And then what they would do, they would literally sing these songs of praise as they're literally being burned alive. And unbelievers would step back and go, this is crazy. There must be something to it. Because nothing explains it. Most people would say, silly Christians. I don't want to be a part of that. Then he says this. He says, when you know your faith is tested. So what happens when I go through these troubles of any kind? Well, my faith is tested. One commentator said it like this. I think he said it really well. He said, the genuineness of something valuable is affirmed through a process of examination and testing. He said, whether it's gold or silver, or precious metals, whether it's diamonds, precious stones, money, anything that is in and of itself of intrinsic value is subjected to testing, to affirm its, its true worth. Got that straight out of a commentary. So the thing being tested here in these difficult days is my faith. Let that hang on your mind just for a second. So what's being tested? My faith. Then verse 3 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So I guess that's kind of like the Stairmaster testing my endurance. Hello, y'all with me? Anybody even know what a Stairmaster is? It's from the pit of hell. That's where it's from. I can tell you that right now. Lynn, I ain't no need for you laughing. I see you over there. 
Then he says, verse 4, he says, so let it grow. And when your endurance is finally developed. Now this is just good news, isn't it? When your endurance is finally developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So I was on the elliptical machine, which is another machine that came from Satan himself. And so I started last July. You feeling the pressure right now? Because I'm looking at you. And so this sweet lady, adoring woman, said, you know, give her some goals. If you want to accomplish these goals, here's what you need to do. And so she put me on the elliptical machine for three hours a day. And I'm just kidding. It wasn't three. It was for 30 minutes. But she told me, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. It was five days a week. And so I remember the first day I got on it, I thought I was in pretty good shape, just to be quite honest with you. My, do- my doctor said you're in pretty good shape. I worked out with a few people who said, for the shape you're in, you're in pretty good shape. And so anyway, so I thought I was I'm feeling good. I got up on this elliptical machine. I'm telling you what, the first few minutes, Mark was beside me. He keeps looking at me. He was laughing. I didn't think it was funny. And so I, 22 minutes, I'm tapping out. I get off the machine. I'm hanging on the machine. Mark said, are you okay? I said, who got the lights out in here? I thought I was going to pass out. It was awful. I don't know if I'm committed. I should be committed probably. That's more like it. But here's what I will tell you. I'm determined. And so I said, I'll just get back on it tomorrow. And I did. And after literally months and months of just continuing to do what I was told to do, I endured the pain, and my endurance was tested. But after all of that pain, my cholesterol was 113, and my blood pressure is 106 over 62. I'm just saying. Daniel? (laughs) He called me yesterday. Somebody told him they thought I had cancer. I said, no, I'm healthier than I've ever been in my life. There was, there was a reason. There was a payoff for the suffering. Now, does that make you feel better? Does it, does it just make you feel better that, to know that I, there's a purpose that all the struggles, all the troubles and the trials and the tribulations and the pain and the loss, to know that everything that you've gone through, there, there's, there's been a reason for it? Uh, maybe not. So he says, my faith has been tested. I've got to be honest with you. I know we're in church on Sunday morning, but I think, what faith? What, what do you mean? You say, my faith is being tested. What faith is that? Is it like just faith to believe that God exists? I don't think so. It's my faith in God. It's my faith in my relationship with God. It's my trust in God. It's the belief It's being convinced that I believe that God really does love me because that's where my faith has been tested. It's not so much that I didn't believe that God existed. Oh, I believe that he existed. I'm not stupid. I could look around and see creation. I could study a little bit of science, and believe it or not, even after studying science, come to the conclusion that there's no way that this was a bunch of gas that went boom in the night, that there had to be a creator behind the creation. The gases thing got you, didn't it? That kind of that kind of got you. You can't make this stuff up, can you? It's not the denial that there is a God. It's the belief that the God that exists doesn't love me. 
but he doesn't care about me. That he's out to get me because I'm a sinner. And the thing of it is, is that when I'm finally, my faith is matured, that I can go through these trials and these tribulations. That's, what, that's the word we use in church, trials and tribulations. Troubles of any kind. I can go through that without any fear. It's, it's the fear that I know that God loves me. I don't have to be afraid that he's going to turn his back on me. I don't have to be afraid that, that tomorrow is going to be worse than it is today because I sinned more today than I did yesterday, and I may sin more tomorrow than I did today. And I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be overwhelmed with fear because I'm thinking that this God, the creator of the heavens and the earth that breathed life into man, that, that this God that put the stars into place and told them how to shine is going to get me. That's what's radically changed my life. What's radically changed my life is to believe I'm convinced, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt His love with me appears to be reckless. And that's why I'm amazed by it. He loves me. He loves me. And so, I can be a slave. And I can say, it doesn't matter. These early Christians were literally being put to death and they were singing hymns of praise as they died. It's crazy. And that's what blew the world. That's what the world would look on and they would think, what, what is it? And they would say, you can't. It doesn't matter what you do to me. Because I'm convinced that he loves me. So you, you want a life hack for all the difficult, tough, challenging days, or maybe even seasons that everyone's going to go through at some point in your life, because they're inevitable. Just so you know, they're inevitable. Whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, does not matter. You're going to go through difficult days. Don't let anybody lie to you. So what's the hack? What's the life hack? It's faith in Jesus. You're looking for something more complicated, right? That's all I got. That's it. It's, it's faith in Jesus. And it's not being able to expound upon the reasons that he exists the ontological or the teleological reason for the existence of God, that's not what he's talking about. It's to believe that I know that he exists and that he loves me and it doesn't matter what comes my way. I can be secure in his love. You can't take that away from me. And it's just awesome if you ever make it to that place. James, he, as he dies, he, he dies a, a death that uh, was pretty horrendous. They tried to kill him and nothing was working. And he literally is, he's literally praying the same prayer that his big brother prayed. A similar prayer. Josephus actually records this word. He says, I beg you, this is the prayer of James, I beg you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And listen, that so angered the people. You would think that somebody would go, wow, this is amazing. There must be something to this. Jesus must actually be alive. One man took a club, the same club that they would use to beat a rug, 
and he used that club, and he hit him in the head, and that's how he died. He, he died with a man that was so angry that he would pray a prayer like that. That's the undeniable faith that James had in Jesus. So maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you've been going through some difficult days that it maybe have turned into difficult seasons. So the question is, I'm full of questions. How you been doing? See, difficult days and difficult seasons, I've been saying this for a long time. I'm the only weird pastor that I know that says it, but I'm telling you, it's, it's the truth. These difficult days, these difficult seasons are going to bring you to the place where you're going to have to answer this question. Is Jesus enough? Is he enough? For these people, they gave their life singing, laughing, being burned alive. And they said, <laughs> do what you want to do doesn't matter he's alive and he's enough he's enough Jesus is enough if you're here this morning I love this church because we can just be honest we don't have to hide behind false faith and so if you're here and you just be gut level honest and you would say you know what I'm a follower of Jesus but I just gotta admit I've been going through some difficult days that have turned into difficult seasons and I'm struggling. I'm just struggling. And I just I just need you to pray for me. If that's you, could you just slip up your hand? Man, I love y'all. I just want to hug you. I've been there too. So I just want to pray for you right now. Those of you that have gone through it and you've been through it and you've made it on the other side, will you just help me pray? the people that are around you. Lord Jesus, life's not fair, but you never told us it to be. You never said that if we follow you that we would be subject to pain or hurt or loss. That's not what you promised, but what you promised is that we would not go through it alone. You promised that you would be a friend that would stick closer than a brother. You promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. That's the promise. And God, honestly, you just have to go through some difficult days to get to a place where you can look back over your life and realize that I was never alone. And that's exactly what I can say, Lord. Through all the loss and all the pain, I was never alone. I felt alone. But then I look back and I see what you did. And your reckless love pursued me when I was angry. And I was so ticked at you that literally, God, I cussed you. I cussed your name. But you pursued me. It's crazy. I wouldn't have done it if I'd been you. So, Lord, for those that right now, they're just struggling. I just lift them up, God. I just want you... Would you just right now whisper in their ear and would you just tell them that you love them? That being a slave to you takes all the pressure off. 
I don't even know what that means, God, but I know that you are just here to speak to these folks and love them. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe the reason that you're here this morning is because you've watched another follower of Jesus, you've watched a Christian go through difficult times and somehow their faith grew. And it caused you just to question things. Maybe you're here because you feel that God has been pursuing you with that reckless love. I want you to know that He's crazy about you more than you could possibly imagine. And maybe somehow this morning, as only the Holy Spirit can, He's just spoke to your heart and He's drawing you to Himself and you feel that. And maybe right now you're just ready. You know, finally the time has arrived and you're ready to fully surrender your life to Jesus. <laughs> this is not like a popular kind of invitation thing, but you're ready to be a slave to God. If that's you, then just quietly right there in your seat, maybe you'd pray a prayer or something like this. You'd say, God, I cannot deny the fact that you've been very busy and very much at work at drawing me to you. You might even tell him, I don't even like you enough that I'd pursue you. But you've been pursuing me. And I cannot deny it. And so this morning, I'm ready to surrender my life to you ask you to forgive me of my sin. I tell you that I believe. I, I just believe. You are who you say you are. That you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. That you were raised on the third day that you're alive. I know you're alive. I can feel your presence right now. So forgive me. And take me this morning as I surrender my life to you to the best of my ability. Thank you for your love, for your reckless love. Father, uh, thank you for just you being you. I never take for granted a single Sunday here, Lord, that we get to experience you because I know that's not something that we can manufacture or make happen. Thank you, Lord, that your presence is real. Thank you for the lives this morning that you are in the process of changing. I just want to tell you that you're awesome. And it's in your sweet name that we pray. Amen.